She's a fierce competitor, businesswoman, and leader amongst her peers. The type of person who, at age 11, decided to play on the all-boys soccer team just for the challenge. Yael Overbush West's competitive edge has driven her to where she is today, but it's her undeniable charm and unwavering investment in the success of women's soccer players that makes her truly shine. I'm Molly Bloom, and this is Torched, a show about the heat of competition and the cost of greatness, both on and off the Olympic stage. On today's episode, we sit down with Yael to track her growth from collegiate soccer player at UNC to the GM and head of operations at the New Jersey, New York Gotham FC. Along the way, she was an international circuit staple, represented her country on the U.S. women's national team, and became the first executive director of the National Women's Soccer League Players Association. Her contributions to women's soccer continue to pile up, and they'll have lasting effects for generations to come. My name is Yael Averbush-West, and I do many things among them. I'm a mother of two young ones. I have my own business, a soccer training app called Techni Football, and I'm the general manager of Gotham FC, which is the women's professional soccer team in my area. Do you sleep ever? No, of course not. (laughs) (laughs) That's so many things. (laughs) I just had a baby three months ago, and so that's like a whole nother level. (laughs) Yeah, congratulations, and and you're not sleeping either, so we're in the same boat. How old are your little ones? (laughs) 19 months and five months, so yeah. So I don't know if, is yours your first? It is, it is. Yeah, well, wait more than 15 months before having another one. (laughs) I will, for sure. I can't even imagine that. (laughs) Yes, it's been wild. My first question is, what drew you to soccer, and when did you first start playing yeah, so my family has always been very active, but my parents know nothing about soccer. Well, I say knew nothing about soccer. <laughs> they would be offended if I say that in the present tense. My friend in school in second grade played soccer, so I thought it looked like fun, and I joined just a local recreation team. And right from the beginning, for some reason, I think I just felt that this was my thing, and I really, really enjoyed it and got serious about it pretty quickly. What do you think you loved about it? I definitely love physical activity and expressing myself physically. And then soccer, I think, has a little bit of everything. It has the skill and the athletic part and the social component of being a team sport. So, And it was my my own thing within my family of very active people. It was something a little different that could be my journey. Do you remember any stories from the early days that were particularly challenging? I was very serious for the fact I was probably an eight, nine-year-old. And I was like, well, I play soccer. I'm going to be a professional one of those. So early on, I because I was so serious, I quite often would play up age groups. On I, I played on an older girls team. And then eventually I was on a boys team. And a friend of my family was the coach of the boys team. So this was about now middle school ages. And why did you play uh, on the boys team? It, at the time, I could have traveled you know, pretty far and, and driven to a, a really elite girls team, but I needed a challenge in terms of the skill level and what I was doing competitively. Mm -hmm. So there was a local option to do that. I literally drive 10 minutes from my house. There were players who were better than me and could play on their team and and learn and grow versus needing to travel pretty far at the time to get the same thing on the girl's side. Gotcha. So as you can imagine, in middle school, being the only girl on a boys sports team was 
quite a scene. And more than once, I now know these stories, more than once the coach had to call my parents and been like, yeah, Elle didn't see anything at practice, did she? Because like some of the guys were stretching and I guess we're wearing boxers and like too much was showing. <laughs> and so there was a lot of concern surrounding what I was seeing and hearing, which I didn't see anything too horrible, but I definitely heard a lot of things that probably scarred me socially for many years of my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet you did. <laughs> just want to dig into that a little bit. Middle school, you're the only girl on this boys soccer team. Did you, did that feel empowering or did that sort of breed insecurity? I, I definitely realized that I was unique and special, which I think is so important for a, a young, especially young woman at that mm. age to feel like I'm good at something. I have this path I'm taking and I'm really serious about it because I was very focused on it. But at the same time, Unlike a lot of people you think of, if they're going to be a professional athlete, usually at every point along the way, you think of that person kind of being a star in their environment. And I wasn't that. I was never that. I, I at my very best, I was an average member of the team, which is like what I was striving for being on a boys team. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was always that compounded, both feeling really good about what I was doing because it, it was unique. And people would say, oh, wow, that girl on your team is good. But I was good for the girl on the team. And so there was a lot of pressure on me and I never fit in really on the field or off the field. So I think it was, it was a very interesting dynamic that definitely had stayed with me for years and years of my soccer playing and my life in general. That's what's awesome about sports though. It kind of gives you that meaning to your life and puts things in a different perspective. For sure. And, and definitely for those kind of age groups that connection and the vision to doing something different than just what everyone's doing in school, which sometimes is not the best thing, so, for sure. was really helpful for me on a personal level. Was there a gender disparity in the sport at the time when you started playing? There was certainly, but at the time it was, it was things I didn't realize. Obviously, being the only girl on a boys team, but I think that the bigger thing was that I was imagining and saying I wanted to be a professional soccer player. I didn't even realize there was not a league for women to play professional soccer in the U.S. at that time. Wow. So I don't know what I thought I was going to be doing. <laughs> to me, it meant playing on the U.S. national team, going to the Olympics, the World Cup. But for men, for the boys on my team, if they wanted to play professional soccer, there was a league, the MLS. Mm -hmm. They could go play on one of, you know, however many teams at the time, 20 teams. Mm -hmm. So I think I didn't even realize, but there was a huge disparity in terms of opportunity. No question. What year was this? It was a late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Time. Yeah. So late 90s was when I was on the boys team. Did this change as you got older? Certainly. And, and now I think in recent times has been the biggest change. But I think the first change was that there existed a professional league for women. So it was called the WUSA at first. And I was in high school when that was around. And it actually folded after three years. But there was something here. And like some of the best stars in the world were coming to play in the US so I could go watch them. So from that point on, I think that changed things because we saw that there, this is a, a thing you can do as a profession. And even when we didn't have a league here in the U.S., the goal was how do we start one up again? And there was another try at one that then didn't succeed. And so now we're in our third try in the 10th year of it with NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League. And now we're seeing we're on to something. It's really gaining a lot of momentum. But it's taken all of these years to get to the point where there's actually a way that a woman can do this as their profession and make enough money to live. And we're just on the brink of that being true. I mean, really, since like 2020, right? Yeah. I mean, arguably not even now for some women. So right, right. It, it depends on, you know, what kind of subsection of the league and, and the women's professional soccer scene you're taking. And there have been some players who have done well in, in recent years, last 10 years, but that group has been pretty small compared to the wider uh, scope of who plays. 
How do you think Title IX played a role in the changes that you've observed? Well, it's really interesting because I only thought of this recently in in thinking about Title IX, but women's college soccer in particular has been the way that we developed as a country to have the best team in the world. And so it was not a professional league. And in the absence of that professional league, we had college soccer to develop players. And college soccer was where the best players in the world in the women's game have developed for a long period of time. And the women who won multiple World Cups. And if you look at basically up until this point, every major tournament that our U.S. women's national soccer team has won has been through developing those players in college. It's only now that the players are being developed and identified in the professional league and some players are starting to skip college. So it's only really recent times. But the opportunity for women to play college soccer and the expanded opportunity and the idea that you could go get a scholarship has created an extremely competitive youth soccer landscape because everyone's now competing for these opportunities to play in college. And then the college game has been where players develop to play professionally. And you played in school. Yeah, I played at the University of North Carolina. So yeah, I I directly benefited from this. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about your soccer career. It was always my dream to play college soccer at UNC and then to play professional soccer. And really what I meant from that, I think when I said it as a young player, is I wanted to represent our country and play on the U.S. national team. So I ended up achieving the first part of my dream and going to play college soccer at UNC. Or The second women's professional league in this country was called WPS, Women's Professional Soccer, launched. And so I got to be part of the inaugural season of that league. And having left college, I came home and was playing back home in New Jersey. And from that point on, I had a 10-year professional playing career. And I both got the opportunity, but also had to move all over the country and the world to pursue that because one team would come, it would leave. So you played in Russia, you played in Sweden. And then what brought you back to the U.S.? Well, I always wanted to come back to the U.S. I was never planning to build a long-term life in Sweden, but I did love it. And and there was a league here then. It was in its second year at the time when I came back, and I wanted to be part of what was going on here. I really believed in it. Once I saw that it was here, and it was here for at least a year, and it was going strong, I, at that point, committed to coming back. So okay. that's now the current league that now, this is so, this is 10 years later. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between playing in college versus playing professionally versus nationally for you personally and for women now? Yeah, so playing in college was arguably some of the best experience because of the size of a, a big university and the type of facilities and type of investment. I think that a lot of players who play women's college soccer and then go into the professional league, find that that is a step down in terms of professionalism facilities. Now, I think it's a little bit different, but from when I was coming into the pro game, certainly I was used to more support, more of a robust administrative system, everything surrounding the play on the field that just made it feel pretty professional from the college level. For a lot of my professional career, I would say the standards were um, not as good as what I experienced in college. On the national team level, though, that was not the case. That was by far, I think, the best type of environment I was in, standards-wise, facilities, a support investment. But it's a very interesting scene. I think even now, there are many colleges that just have really professional-level facilities. Can you kind of describe those facilities a little bit, juxtaposed to the professional facilities? 
You know, it's interesting because at the time I was at UNC, the women's soccer facilities, everyone assumed because it's the historic soccer program yeah. that we had these nice facilities. And I remember visiting other schools, like there when we went to play University of Tennessee and some other places, I remember thinking like, whoa, theirs is just so much nicer than what we have. They've recently redone the women's soccer, you know, locker room and the, built a soccer specific stadium. And it's absolutely beautiful. So let's talk a little bit about the NWSL Players Association. You were very involved in the founding, and I just kind of want to get some color on what motivated you to be involved in the founding and how you feel about that. I didn't think I was founding a players association or a union at the time. Some players and myself, all of a sudden, we were veterans as professional players. It happened really quickly, as does in a lot of places. You go from a freshman to a senior real fast. But we realized that as the league was progressing and making decisions and all these things were happening, we had no say or no voice in any of it. We had no way to get questions answered. We had no way to say, hey, there was a problem at this hotel or conditions of this field wasn't good enough. Like, there was no way to voice those type of things. So they'd end up on Twitter. And quite mm -hmm. honestly, that was why I took the first action is because I was really sad to see that of all the things during the year that happened in our league, the things that would blow up on social media were the couple disasters or negative things that happened rather than let us handle that behind closed doors and promote the wonderful things happening in the league more often. I really was just trying to work with my peers to start a communication chain. Can we get these problems to the league so we don't have to go on to a public forum to do that? Okay. So it was more in the, in the beginning, it was more just about communication. Yeah, it was like we had a need to be able to get questions answered and sure. filter some complaints or concerns to the league and there was nothing. So that was what I was really aiming to do to start off. And then I started to learn about how do other sports handle this and mm -hmm. what do they do on the men's side? And as I learned, I started to piece together, okay, we need to actually have an official way to do this and we need to be members of an organization. But I knew nothing about any of that. I had never been part of a union or players association in any of my other professional environments. That learning process must have been really cool. I certainly learned a ton and had a lot of wonderful help and support, in particular from the Men's League Players Association. Oh, I love that. That's great. So all in all, it was, would you say it was a gratifying experience? Yeah, it was tough and gratifying. And I still, I feel really proud of the players as a whole and the whole group in terms of what we were able to accomplish. So yeah, it's something I think I will look back on. And over time, I think I'll feel even more proud about. Yeah, no kidding. To give people a voice. It's Absolutely. Such a cool legacy. What does the NWSL Players Association do? Like if you had to give it to people in one sentence who aren't familiar? Well, the, the Players Association is the collective voice and bargaining unit for the players. So anything from contractually negotiating a collective bargaining agreement with the league to simply being an avenue for players to go to get support and questions answered when it comes to their employment in the league, the Players Association is the representative to handle and advocate for all things work in NWSL. In terms of this organization and certain steps you've you've taken, are there any big wins along their way that you remember? Any good stories? Certainly working on the, well, the first ever CBA, that has to come to mind first. And just for any of the listeners that don't know, CBA is the Collective Bargaining Agreement. Yes. So I had been working with player Brooke Elby. She was a former player. And we were trying to hire an executive director to take over because Brooke 
was going to business school, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Soon we'd have this negotiation of a CBA coming up. So fast forward, I actually, I, I left on maternity leave. I had my first child and then came back and started working with the league for Gotham FC. So that all happened within, you know, a year after that. And Ironically, I ended up back on the other side of negotiating the CBA. The league asked me if I would join the CBA committee on the league's behalf. So I started the process on one side of the contract and then ended up working and negotiating on the other side of it. So I was like, this has come quite full circle and I literally could not avoid it. I tried to stay away from anything having to do with it. But in finalizing that contract, I think one of the coolest things was just a little text chain I had with Brooke Elby. Tori Huster, who's a currently a player in the league, the president of the Players Association, as well as a couple of other former players and the current leadership of the Players Association. And we kind of tied it all together over time. It's like, wow, guys, we all played our little part throughout the past, whatever, five years. And how amazing that we've come to this point, because it, it was really historic in the women's game to get to that point. And it kind of signified to the sustainability and the future of the league. And we had all been part of leagues that no longer existed. So we had this little text chain going, a little virtual celebration and some virtual cheers in there. And it, it was really special. I mean, that's a huge victory. And what was it like to serve as the executive director for the NWSL? So I was executive director for the Players Association for a little bit when I stepped away from playing. And it was really interesting because typically in a role like that, you wouldn't have a player who's come straight out of the league. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of side conversations I had trying to explain the importance of the Players Association to a group of my peers who, and we had never had an organization like that supporting us. So why is it important to pay dues? What is the vision here? What is a CBA? These were some of the conversations is like, as we were all learning this, I was really interestingly in this leadership role, but I was learning a lot as I was going. I had never done that before. And I was also learning and educating at the same time and answering players' questions, a lot of questions, because Everyone felt comfortable shooting me a text, whereas usually maybe the executive director of your union, you might not just feel comfortable giving a call at you know nine at night or shooting them a text. <laughs> so a lot of it was communication and education for myself and for the others involved. And you were so fresh and close to being a player. Do you think that worked in your favor? It certainly did. It also certainly made some conversations more difficult. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, the idea of asking players to to take certain actions or to, to pay dues or things like that that are more difficult conversations. I think at times it was harder for me to have those conversations or, or share difficult news or say, you know what, we talked to the league. They're not going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, because I didn't have that separation quite often, I would be fielding late night phone calls or disappointment or things like that. That's a normal part of the process, but maybe wouldn't have come someone else's way had they not have been so close to what was actually going on. We all talk about the come down after retiring from athletics. Did you experience that? It looks like you just jumped right into this other role. And I wonder how that impacted that sort of come down that so many of us experience. I did jump right in. So really that was a good did. observation. For me, I wasn't ready to stop playing. I think most people in a lot of ways are not ready to stop their sport professionally. At the time, I was running my business already. I was the president of the Players Association. So by default, I had these things I was working on that I ramped up when the other side of my involvement ramped down. And I think it saved me in a lot of ways from a really tough transition that I've elongated. So I think I'm still feeling it. Um, mm -hmm. But just even things like my relationship with 
exercise and training has been a big one. I, I still miss playing and training with a purpose. And I think a lot of people who have played sports at a high level can relate to this is like, I don't like to just go and do stuff. I like to be working on something and progressing. So for me, those are still the pieces I'm figuring out, but I definitely did not have a choice in terms of when I stepped away and I did have other things I was immediately responsible for. So there was less so the professional sense of come down and figuring it out. And, but definitely physically lifestyle wise, everything else that goes into it was, and, and still is pretty tough. So you are now the general manager for Gotham FC. That's really cool. Yeah. It's still, it's still kind of funny to me. It's a little bit strange. (laughs) What's it like? People ask, what's the day in the life of a general manager? And that's the funny thing is there is no day in the life. It's literally (laughs) different every single day. I'm learning a ton about how the league functions, what it means to be a leader in this role, what people have done in the past, what we can do differently from our organization standpoint. And really the reason I'm doing is I I say this openly to the players. I'm doing this for the players because I really do care about their experience here. This is my first professional club, actually. I've been here as a player and I'm hoping we can continue to elevate their experience and, and just the general brand of what we offer to people in the New York, New Jersey area. You know, it's a tough market. I know that you said that your days are different every day, but give us a sample day in your life. Looking at everything from our actual roster and the players we have and how the team is able to perform and and what pieces we need there to looking at how we take care of those players off the field and everything about, you know, building community relationships and relationships on the youth soccer side in the area. So really my day is full of, I would say a lot of emails and phone calls And from the time in which I start working, there's kind of this general mix of nursing my son, being (laughs) on a video call, recording a podcast, being on the phone with my headphones on, helping my daughter put on her shoes and while I'm (laughs) putting my son's pacifier back in. And all of it kind of just comes together in this crazy landscape of parenting and soccer and (laughs) actual business. And how many years have you been there? In August, it'll be a year. I mean, I'm just sitting here freaking out about how much you have on your plate. (laughs) You know what? I think when people ask me about it, I feel a little bit of panic as well. (laughs) I'm like trying to... I appreciate the secondhand freak out. I'm trying to picture your day with two kids under two, right? Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, and and I hope you can't hear in the background because I think one was screaming, waking up from his nap. Oh, I got one that'll be screaming too, so it's all good. (laughs) Well... You know what? I was feeling pretty energetic, but now that you're bringing my mind to it, I'm like, I need sorry, another coffee. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I need coffee too. How are players combating the disparity in pay spectatorship? Well, there's a lot of pay disparity in the within the women's game and then between the women's and men's game. So I tell people in my 10th year as a professional player, after I'd represented our country, I had played all over the world. I made $21,000. That's what my wow. contract was for. That's why I had, I had launched my own business. I was doing other things because I literally could not, I couldn't build a life on that. People, when people are like, well, what do you mean the women don't make enough? It's like they're thinking probably not, oh, not millions. Well, no, like literally some of the women did not and do not make enough money to live. Mm. 
Now the minimum salary is at 35,000. I mean, that's hugely improved. Still, you know, just from your reaction to that, you see that that is Not still too low. Yeah, yeah. So over time, these things will go up, but it takes time and it takes continuing to build. But yeah, it's quite a journey. And when you look at, it's less so even about the disparity. It's just about what do these women who are top 1% in their field in the world deserve and how can we make sure they're taken care of and they are compensated in a way that, that makes sense for who they are and their level of expertise in their field. Those numbers are shocking. Yeah. And that's why some people don't understand what the actual numbers are. And I was not, I wasn't at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. I was a more veteran player. So there were players who made more than me, but not, not a ton. Mm -hmm. A lot of players made, made less than me on my team. What is the NWSL Players Association role, if any, in changing this disparity and, and making sure that players who are in the top 1% of their field can actually make their life work. So that is the real victory in the collective bargaining agreement was that it stipulated this new minimum salary, which was a huge jump up, and it stipulates increases year over year, bonuses, things like that. But it's overall compensation. It's the benefits package. It's, you know, right now teams are required to provide housing and players can negotiate things like car stipends. So the Players Association is responsible for negotiating that and advocating for the players. Their role cannot be overstated. Mm -hmm. It literally is the role of the Players Association. (laughs) How do you feel about the progress that's been made? I think there's great progress and we're moving the right direction, but it's about balancing the business and the sustainability while doing what's right for the players and making sure those things go up. And it It has to happen over time and they have to go in tandem. We can't have the players compensated at the expense of a league that's not successful. Everybody knows that if and when the league is successful, we want the players to be more successful and compensated even better. Certainly a journey and we're 10 years into what hopefully we'll look back in another 30 years or something and say, whoa, remember when Mm -hmm. it was 35,000 was the minimum salary? That's crazy. But, you know, just to give it a little perspective, when the league started, I believe the minimum salary was $7,500 okay. for, for the year. So the season was a little shorter, but that was what you'd make from NWSL in, in a year. And what year was that? That was 2013. Wow. Okay, so last week was pretty exciting. The U.S. Soccer Federation put in place contracts to ensure equal pay on the national level. Yeah, so now the women and men have equal pay for appearances with the national team, win bonuses, everything that goes into their experience representing the U.S. This feels like a huge moment. It's huge. Yeah. This is historic. And it also is paving the way for other countries to look at what they're doing, especially when it comes to the big argument over the years has been, well, FIFA, which is the governing body, the, the soccer federation worldwide, has more prize money for the men than the women. So how can we in the U.S. say, if the men win the World Cup and they get X million more than the women, how can we say that the U.S. will compensate them equally? It makes no sense. The pool of money is so much bigger on the men's side. But what the U.S. soccer has done is said, we don't care about that. We will still compensate them equally for equal success, which is it's taking away basically any excuse and it's showing other federations that you could do the same thing. Did you know this was coming? I knew the fight was ongoing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how I was hoping and assuming it would be resolved eventually with some sort of announcement that things had been equalized. I didn't know to what extent. I have not been involved in the nitty gritty insider pieces of this, but I was really proud to see it and see it accomplished like this and, and now. Were you surprised? 
it's strange because yes and no, I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. And this is kind of sad, but I was a a little bit surprised about how good the news was. (laughs) Well, when you fight for so long and you don't have that good news, I think you prepare yourself for the disappointment perpetually. That's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I'm so happy that that was the decision and the outcome. This has to make a difference in, in terms of pay for professional level players. Well, definitely. And and I think the big picture too is that it also changes, this is a little bit nuanced maybe, but it changes the structure of how the women are paid. So in the past, because there was not a sustainable professional league where those players would be employed week in and week out, the U.S. national team put them on a contract where they'd have their benefits through there. They picked 30 players or 35 players and they were on a contract for the year. And then they got some extra bonuses and appearance compensation and things like that. Now it works the same way as it does on the men's side. So the women for their professional clubs, that's where they are making their living. Mm-hmm. And now the onus is on the professional clubs to compensate them well enough. And now when they show up for a training camp or a game to represent the U.S., that's when their bonus is equivalent or their pay is equivalent to what the men are making. So it's changed the nature of their participation in that team, which opens up opportunity for more women outside of the 30 to 35 on contract. And it, it, like I said, it changes how the professional clubs view their U.S. national team caliber players is now you're responsible to support those women and be kind of the, the base of how they make their living. What else do you think needs to happen to move towards gender equality in soccer? I I think investment is key in a lot of it. When I think about investment, it's not just into player salaries or, or facilities. It's things like how, how games are broadcast. Uh, And I watch, you know, the quality of a stadium, the quality of the actual broadcast feed, the camera work, the analysts and commentary, all of that creates a perception about a product. And I've even thought this over time. Imagine if you had the best men in the world, Manchester City, you know, we won't even say because someone's going to listen and be like, they're not the best in the world. But, you know, (laughs) one of the top men's teams in the world come and play on some of the fields that the women play on with the camera angles and the commentary. And I would argue that not many people might watch that either. So, when the investment is there to create the, the quality of product that we see on the men's side, I truly believe everything else will follow. And we've seen it. I think Europe is leading the way in this on the women's side. And we've seen even just with the Women's Champions League final that happened this past week, the quality of the game and broadcast and how it was showcased was what the players deserve. And it, it helps to amplify this, the skill and the talent of the athletes. Oh, that's such an interesting point. And, and as soon as you started saying it, I'm like, that's so true. What else gives you hope for the future? In general, I think that this, the sponsors coming on board and the support we've seen from the outside, I, I think is huge. And also seeing that some of the players have transcended the soccer field. We have players on our team who get recognized in restaurants in New York City. I mean, and that's saying something, you know, we're not in the middle of nowhere here. And so, and there are players in our league who need to have a police escort at a player appearance. Wow. Those kind of things are really, really important. I think that there's that much hype surrounding those players. And I think it's that other people too are recognizing the opportunity and recognizing who these women are is so, so important. This is an opportunity and 
get on board with us because we're going somewhere. This is really awesome rather than a, hey, we need your help. It's not that anymore at all. It's a get in on this while you can because it's really taking off. Yeah, it is. In the last couple of years, it really feels like women's soccer is having a huge moment and a well-deserved one and one that I think will sustain because it's such a cool sport and you've got such cool dynamics and, and characters and players. And I think that it's really just from a complete bystander, you can see that that all happening. What you said was well well put to it. It's it's cool. Like there the yeah. uniforms look cool. The players themselves are really cool. Really cool. What's going on? There's a lot of buzz on social media. It's gone really well in the trend of how people are consuming entertainment, I think, in terms of you can get right up close and personal and understand who these women are and what they're wearing to the games and what they're doing after the game. And that is all part of the package, not just what happens on the field. Yeah. And you have some real stars. Yeah. Real stars. What would you say to young women who want to be soccer players? Well, I'd say definitely you're playing soccer in the right time. Right. (laughs) And You can't possibly watch enough and soak up enough information. So if you are out there and you want to be a soccer player, watch what other women are doing who have done what you want to do. And that's pretty much the the biggest gift you could give a kid, I think, is showing them what can be done. And many women before did not have that opportunity, but now you can watch women who are the absolute best at what they do week in and week out, and you can try to learn about their journeys and do it the way they did or chart your own path. And that that's a really amazing opportunity that hasn't always been there. Yeah, that's great insight. Great advice. I think this is truly an amazing point in time for women's sports. And I my entire involvement from the time I gained consciousness about you know, the trajectory of women's sports and the lack of equality and all those things, I haven't been aware of a time that I think is as impactful as this time. Again, I think Title IX was probably the first huge turning point. And I think whatever's going on now is going to one day be looked back on as a massive, massive turning point towards women's sports being respected and sought after in the same way as men's. And how cool is that? I just keep thinking about you as this little kid playing on this boys team. And then now you're at the forefront and and involved in leadership and in creating this seismic change. And I just think it's so cool. I mean, what a life. Well, thanks. It's, yeah. I, it takes sometimes a conversation like this to think of it like that. So I appreciate it. <laughs> but sometimes when I'm in the weeds, I'm like, this oh, is really yeah. hard. Oh, for but, sure. But I think that's true for anything we all do that we really care about is it feels incredibly hard during the time. And then when you look back, you can appreciate it a little bit more. <laughs> Having the opportunity to speak so candidly with Yael reminds me that awareness and elevating athletes from all angles is a vital component for growth and evolution toward a more complete sports culture, not just in the States, but all around the world. Yael and the National Women's Soccer League are prime examples of what can be accomplished in a short amount of time, both in pay equity and investment in future athletes' publicity. Yael has helped pave the way for some of our next superstars to take the world stage and inspire us all, both on and off the field. Torched is a production of Film Nation Entertainment in association with Gilded Audio. It's executive produced by me, Molly Bloom, Alyssa Martino, Milan Papelka, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. This episode was produced by Nikki Stein and Kelsey Albright. Tori Smith is our associate producer. Olivia Canny is our production assistant. 
Additional story editing from James Boo. Original music by James Lovino. Special thanks to Allison Cohen and Matt Eisenstadt. Next time on Torched, we'll discuss breaking, an art form, dance, and cultural movement that will soon grace its biggest stage yet, the 2024 Olympics. This entity has been trying to get in the Olympics for since at least 1990, almost three decades, and failed. And they've invested time, resources. They have no more hope of getting in the Olympics. So they're using breaking as their Trojan horse. That's next time on Torched. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, follow, subscribe, and leave us a review. See you next time.